Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. The entire worship service, if you haven't noticed, hangs on the historical reality that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. In fact, all of Christianity hangs on the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, why believe any of all that he said? But if Jesus did rise from the dead. We need to accept and obey everything that he said. So everything hangs on that. The risen Jesus here does several things in the passage that changes the lives of his disciples forever. And because he's the risen Jesus, those same things apply to us today, right now, right here. What does he do? We're going to cover three things. Jesus addresses their doubts intellectually, he addresses their needs with intimacy, and he addresses their sorrows with his injuries. He addresses their doubts, he addresses their needs, and he addresses their sorrows. First, we're going we're to address, we're going to see how Jesus addresses their doubts. In other words, Jesus argues with them. He argues with them intellectually. He debates with them. Verses 38 to 41, he says, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I. He says, touch me. He shows them his hands and his feet. He says, do you have something to eat? Repeatedly, over and over, Jesus is arguing with them. And here's the point. What he's saying is this. I'm really raised from the dead. I'm really raised. I'm really here. I'm not just spiritually here. I'm not just symbolically here. I'm not just metaphorically here. I'm physically here in the body. That's what he's saying. In other words, the resurrection is historically true. It's a historical reality. Jesus literally, physically, historically, not spiritually, not just metaphorically, he rose from the dead. That's primary. It's the primary thing for us to understand. Now, modern people today... They have a great deal of trouble with that truth. Many people, most people, don't buy into the idea of a physical resurrection or a bodily resurrection. On one hand, they say, look, I really don't believe 
that these are actual eyewitness accounts. These are fictional accounts written many, many years later, after the fact, by people who wanted everybody to believe. Now, think about this. And scholars have already refuted this over and over, but common sense will tell you this as well. This is not the way you would write a fictional account, not in those days, probably not in these days as well. Without going into details, we can recount the Epic of Gilgamesh written in the ancient Sumerian Sumerian times, the Mesopotamian era. We can talk about Homer's Iliad, uh, particularly Book 22, when they count or recount Achilles and his last battle. We can talk about the return of Odysseus, written in the 8th century BC by Homer, uh, and uh, the, the travels of Odysseus. We can talk about the Aeneid, which was actually written and appreciated during Jesus' time. You can actually go to the Old Testament, refer to Daniel chapter 12, or just watch The Matrix. The bodily resurrection, they all say the same, same thing, the bodily resurrection comes with wisdom, comes with radiance, comes with power, comes with glory. In other words, it would have made more sense to have had a radiant Jesus bursting in, making a grand entrance, everybody shielding their eyes. But instead, what do you have here? If you were making up the story, would you do, it th- would you do this? Would you write it this way? What do you have here? What does Jesus do? Completely unlike anything that was written in history as fiction. Jesus appears in their midst and he says, what does he say? Don't hold your breath because he says, do you have anything to eat? That's what he says. Nothing magnificent. Totally mundane. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. Seriously, if you were making up a story about a resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, you just wouldn't say things like this. You know, this type of fiction didn't exist in those days. And in fact, the mundane story, the the mundane details of any fictional novel, that type of genre had not existed probably until centuries later. Why would this be here? How mundane, I mean, how odd, how uninspiring, completely uninspiring. Why is it there? And the only reason why it's there is because it must have happened. The author is not writing fiction. He's writing news. The author isn't just writing to tell a fictional story. He's writing history. Legends, fiction would not be written this way. Now, other people say, well, we now have a modern worldview that says that the resurrection is impossible. Back then, people had a very different worldview a very primitive worldview. They believed in miracles all the time. Now, again, that doesn't fit uh, not only with this text, but what we know of history. Look at this text. What do you see in this text? Jesus shows up, and when he shows up, what? Immediately they say, yes, exactly. That's what we expected? No, that's not what they do. They were startled. They were frightened. They were shocked. If you were making this up, or if these people were primitive in their thinking, when Jesus appears and he says, it is I, touch me, they would have said, they would have celebrated, had a party with their belief. But after he goes through the first line of arguments, the first series of verses that we just read, what does it say? Verse 41, they still did not believe. They saw him in the flesh and they still did not believe because their worldview, it just didn't allow it. Their worldview didn't allow it. And that fits exactly with what we know about first century history and today. Their worldview doesn't allow it. 
Our worldview doesn't allow it. N.T. Wright, there's a quote, it's printed in the first page of your bulletin. He writes this, It cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them was something that might happen to all on that great future occasion when God brought history to an end and a whole new world was renewed. In other words, it would not do well to say that Jesus' disciples were so shocked, so stunned, that's what N.T. Wright writes, that they were unable to come to terms with, with, with that, and as a result, they invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection. Keep in mind, there were lots of messianic figures throughout Jesus' time, contemporaries of Christ, that, invent, that, that started similar types of movements in the Jewish world. And as a result, they, the leaders died violent deaths at the hands of the authorities. But not one case, not a single documented case, mentions the follower's disappointment and then claiming that their hero had resurrected. And you know why? Because they knew better than to do that. They knew better. Both modern views and ancient worldviews say that the resurrection is impossible. The Greeks, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, they, they had a worldview that said the resurrection of the body was impossible. The Jews had a worldview that the individual resurrection was impossible until the end of the world. So no matter how much they longed for Jesus, no matter how much they missed Jesus, how much they wanted to see Jesus, their worldview would never have imagined that Jesus Christ himself would have risen from the dead. It wouldn't have made sense for them to talk about it. It wouldn't have made sense for them to write about it. It certainly wouldn't have made sense for them to confess it unless it happened. Unless it happened. Are you struggling with the reality of Christ's resurrection? Are you struggling with that? Don't do yourself a disservice. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't, don't try to reduce it. Because if you don't believe that the resurrection really happened physically, historically, in the flesh, none of these things that we're about to talk about next, that he did in their lives, will happen in yours. Let Jesus, let the text argue with you. Let it argue with you. Let it battle with you. Let it challenge your worldview. Because only a God that can actually challenge your core beliefs and challenge your worldview can actually change you. That's the only type of, that's, only, that's the definition of God. That's the only way. He addresses their doubts. Secondly, Jesus addresses their needs, their deepest needs, and he addresses their needs with intimacy. And how do we see that? He eats with them. When ancient people sat down to eat with one another, it meant something a lot more than it does even with us in a very community-oriented society that we have today. Even more than that, for ancient people to bring someone in to eat was to invite them not just to a meal, but into relationship, into intimacy. This is pre-industrial and agrarian culture. So to eat, to eat a nice meal, uh, it takes lots of work, lots of preparation, lots of money. Remember the story of Martha and Mary? They were preparing a meal for Jesus. Why was that so significant? Because it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes dollars. A tremendous cost. And Jesus is saying, you abandoned me. You deserted me. You doubt me. But I am near. And I want to be intimate with you. Look, when someone dies, we can remember them. We all do that today. You can set up a type of shrine in their name. You can, you can if you've lost somebody uh, in an untimely way, you can keep their room just the way it is. 
There's a show uh, in primetime television right now called Resurrection. It's a very intriguing show. Uh, it started about a month ago. And the show begins with uh, a couple whose child they lost 30 years ago, but in an odd sort of way came back to life and now is visiting them. And so uh, he's still the same size, same shape. And so the mother, who's in complete disbelief, doesn't know what to do. But what does she do? She enters into his room, or her room for that, for that matter, and pulls out this box. And there are all of his clothes neatly laid out in the box. And she picks up the clothes, and she smells the clothes, and she embraces the clothes. You know why? Because you can say, I can still feel him with me. I can still feel him with me. But if you hang on that way, it's only going to make you long for them more. It's only going to make your heart ache for them more because you've lost them. But Jesus is here, and what he's saying is this. I was dead, but not anymore. Because I resurrected, you can really, really have me forever. That's what he's saying. And what's the significance of this? A lot of us grew up with the idea that if I could just find that one great person, if I could just find that one hero in my life, the one person who's going to come into my life who will just love me and he'll just complete me, if I could just find that person, and that's the reason why most of us are always after that one person. We're looking for that person. Since the age of 12 until even now, you, maybe you saw some movie or you read some book or maybe you listened to some song or a series of songs by one singer and you're fantasizing about that person. We all do that. We're fantasizing about the character of that person. Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennett or Mr. Darcy. If you've read Anne of Green Gables and Gilbert or any one of the superheroes in these superhero films that we watch, what do we do? We put ourselves in the movie and we fantasize. We put ourselves in the book. What happens? After a while, you start to grow up and you start to look for this person to marry. You start to put your expectations that that have been taught to you as you've been reading or watching these uh, books and, and movies. And you place them, you project them onto these people. And that's why it's taking us so long to find that person. You're looking for that one person who's so wonderful, who's going to come into your life and redeem your life, complete your life, love you the way you believe you want to be loved. Now, it's one thing to sort of fantasize about this person in a movie or in a book, but it's another thing to look for that person, to find that person, to project your expectations on that person, to marry that person, because if you do that, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. Because there's not a single human being who could possibly bear the weight of that expectation. Because they're needy. They're flawed. They have limits. They have insecurities. They have burdens. There's not a single person who could meet up to the weight of those expectations except one. You read the Gospels, and you will see Jesus Christ like all those protagonists. There's not a single original story because the Gospel subsumes every one of those stories. All the knights in shining armor, all the superheroes, all the princes and kings, all rolled up into one. And he says, you can have me. You can have me. Not just fantasize about me. Not just imagine me. You can really have me. One who will love you to the end. I have loved you with an everlasting love, he says in Jeremiah. I can complete you. That's what Jesus says. Now, the Jews of the first century, whenever they had a prophet or a martyr who died, 
Uh, they venerated his tomb. Lots of examples of messianic leaders who got a movement together and they were killed at the hands of, uh, of the authorities. Almost every case, the people would take the tomb, they would turn it into a shrine, and you would remember his, his words. And you would remember and commemorate the movement. You would live on, the person's memory would live on by you venerating his tomb. But what about Christ? You ever think about this? What about Jesus? There's not even the slightest hint of any kind of evidence in history of any Christian ever doing that with Christ's tomb. In fact, we don't even know where the tomb of Jesus is. Where is Jesus' tomb? If you go to Jerusalem, they'll try to tell you, but they can't. They can't tell you. They have no idea because within a few decades after Christ's death, nobody even found it because they ignored it and they lost it altogether. How do you lose the tomb of Jesus Christ? Here's how you lose it. If someone you love dies, suddenly everything that they owned, everything that they had written becomes sacred. Someone you love. Um, We can reduce it even to this. If you've ever had a great experience, a great experience, you go to a good worship service, or uh, you go to a, a good show, a concert, you go on a great date, what do you do? You tend to save the bulletin, you tend to fold up the napkin, or the, you collect the, uh, the matchbox, right? That's what you do. You tend to save the, the playbill of the show or the concert. You store it. Why? Because at least for that moment, that experience shaped you. That experience moved you. It becomes sort of sacred to you in a way. If someone you love dies, suddenly what they own, what they said, what they wrote becomes sacred to you. He wore this. And you store it. Because you don't have them. You're trying to savor what's left of them. But come on, think about it. If those people were still alive and you see their shirt lying around, what would you do? You'd be like, get this thing out of here. Clear this. Clean this stuff up. Why? Because you have them. Because you have them. No one visits an empty tomb. No one does that. Why didn't the tomb matter? Why didn't Jesus' grave clothes matter? Why is there no veneration? We did it before. We do it even now. Why do we do that? It's because they had him. They knew they had him. Because of the resurrection, now you know that the lover that you've been looking for all your life, the ultimate hero that you've been looking for all your life, all your life, the one person you desperately want in life, Jesus is saying, you can actually, you can really have me. It is I. Do you know what it is I? It is I, ego a me. It's a phrase uh, translated in the Old Testament when Moses goes to Pharaoh, because, because uh, when Moses goes to God after he was commanded by God to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, Moses says, what will I say to the people when they ask me who sent you? God says, translated in the New Testament, ego me, it is I, I am. Jesus appears and he says, it is I. Resurrection means that we can finally have the intimacy that we've been looking for all our lives. That intimacy is not a physical thing. We try to find it in the physical. We try to find it in the emotional, even in the psychological. But it's actually cosmic. It's spiritual. He says, you can actually have that one that is real, one that is the only true reality, one that is lasting, 
one that will be everlasting, one that is redeeming, one that is faithful, one that will complete you to the end. So he addresses their doubts. He addresses their needs with intimacy. And lastly, he addresses their wounds. He addresses their sorrows by showing them his own, by showing them his injuries. Verse 40, he shows them his hands and his feet. What is their response? Joy. Their response is amazement. Why did he do it? Why didn't he say, guys, come on, look at me. You know me. Look at my eyes. Why didn't he say that? What were on his hands and feet? It was his wounds. It was his nail prints. Why, if Jesus' body is glorified, would his wounds still be there? Now think about it. The best types of stories, everybody loves good stories with good endings. In fact, there are cultures who mandate by law in our world today that you can't have a sad ending in a movie. So uh, everybody loves happy endings. Happy endings, what, what is a happy ending? You've got to start out with bad things happen, then bad things happen, then bad things happen, then worse things happen, then the worst things happen, and then what happens? Uh, you have this unexpected thing that you, that you weren't looking for automatically leads to a happy ending. And there are several ways that you can get there. There are several ways that these happy endings come about. But the best kind of story is where the bad things, you had to have the bad things because it rolls up into the redemption. It rolls up into the deliverance. It rolls up into the salvation. The bad things are actually taken up, consumed by the joy that comes and is birthed out of it. And there's so many examples, and I, I wish I had the time to share with you the many examples because I'm a, I read a lot and I like, like to watch a lot of movies, but Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, I mean, Pride and Prejudice, The Avengers, anyone, take any one of these movies. And, and if you watch these movies, you'll see a bad, thing's ha- a bad thing happens and a bad thing happens and a bad thing happens and then a worse thing happens and then the absolute worst thing happens and suddenly when it looks like absolute disaster, total loss, everybody's losing faith, everybody's losing hope, the music shows you that everything's going spiraling downward into the dramatic and then just at the pinnacle, the joy hits you. The joy hits you. And it's not just because at the end... The good happens in spite of the bad things. But every single one of those bad things gets rolled up and consumed in the joy. Everything happens to point to the joy at the end. The joy subsumes everything. The joy redeems the horror throughout the story. In In fact, the bad things had to have happened in order to make the joy possible, in order to make the joy greater. Jesus shows them his nail prints. Why? He was supposed to have been king. Before he died, he was supposed to have been king. The disciples were supposed to have been a part of his cabinet. That's what they were expecting. But when those nails went into his hands, when that nail went into his feet, their lives, as they knew it, were over. The nails ruined their lives. Absolutely ruined their lives, right? But Jesus, he shows them his hands and his feet. And he says, no. The nails saved your life. You thought that these things were ruining your life. But in fact, these things have subsumed all of your sorrow and will bring you into a joy and it's actually saving your life. I experienced the ultimate terror. I experienced the ruin. I experienced the forsakenness. He wanted intimacy. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I've lost 
intimacy with God, cosmically. He wasn't just rejected by the people around him. He says, my God, my God, of all the things that he could have complained about, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've lost intimacy. I've lost, I'm utterly in despair. I've suffered the ultimate terror, the ultimate despair, so that you, your sorrows, will all one day be subsumed in joy. He says, and one day we will drink together together in peace, in the glory. The joy will happen because of my sorrow. Not in spite of the sorrow, but because of the sorrow, through the sorrow. Jesus, you know, at Gethsemane, he's being ripped apart. Emotionally, he's, he's suffering the grief that he will endure physically on the cross. And on the cross, his body is just completely torn apart, utterly torn apart, utterly abandoned, completely alone. A storm comes and rages while he is being crucified. Not even the sun is present. That's how serious our sin is. That's the seriousness of our sin. It consumes us, and yet Christ is utterly consumed for our sake so that we would experience the blessing of God, so that we would experience joy. Why are the nail prints still on his glorified body? And the answer is, 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 that's how God's salvation works. The joy of God, the resurrection power of God, it just doesn't, it doesn't make you forget your troubles. It doesn't make you forget your tragedies. In fact, Jesus appears, and, and the Apostle Paul says, it's written in your word of encouragement, that, that we will be like, we will bear the likeness of the man in heaven. Our sorrows have meaning because the joy will include them. We will recognize them. The joy will make sense out of them. You say, I'm so confused. This has brought me into utter confusion, utter spiral. I have been abandoned, I feel. But the thing is, Christ has been abandoned, the ultimate abandoned. He suffered the ultimate isolation. He suffered the ultimate forsakenness so that your joy will one day subsume all of the grief, all of the terror. Your joy will be enhanced because of it. Think about it. In heaven, if there was no sorrow experienced on earth, you would never have things like bravery. You would never have things like courage. You will never experience or understand that concept of sacrifice born into joy. Heaven would be less complete without your sorrows. And that's why the joy comes because of the sorrows. The sorrows will be taken up in the joy. It will enhance your, enhance your joy. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. It shows us that all the things that we thought are ruining our lives or have ruined our lives will actually save our lives. Guilt. Guilt. Sometimes we live without power. Do you feel like you're living without power because there's indwelling sin in your life? Jesus says, I've lost the Father so that you can have the Father. I've lost the intimacy of God so you can have the intimacy of God. That means that you have the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in you, residing in you. A few weeks ago, we talked about our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God residing. We have access eternally with God, and that gives us power. That gives us wisdom. That gives us courage. That gives us humility. That gives us the power to forgive, the power to give, the power to live. I sound like Dr. Seuss. Any other, I don't know, words that can rhyme with that. You've got it. It gives us wisdom and strength and, and, and presence and courage and joy 
in the midst of sorrows, in the sorrow, subsumed in the sorrow. Do you believe that? Behold the cross. Behold the empty tomb, if you believe it. In order to believe it, you've got to let it challenge your doubts. You've got to let it challenge and argue with you. But if you see that Jesus was really raised, if you receive him into your life with resurrection power, you know what's going to happen? It's going to make you a witness. Jesus talks and he says, you are witnesses. See him, touch him, hear him, speak to him. Let him argue with you. And he is so alive and he is so gracious and he will contend with you and he will reside with you. And that's going to give you purpose. They were sent out. He says, wait, and then the Spirit will come with power, and you will be sent out. Do you believe that? It's true. Let's pray.